0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Season 8 of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season 8 is comprised of lectures written and delivered by Rachel Zucker during her tenure as a Bagley Wright lecturer. Rachel Zucker's lectures ask questions about obedience, wrongness, and decorum. Like her poetry, the lectures are born from a long lineage of female writers and artists who ask, What now? What next? And am I allowed to do this? To break that? Rachel considers the history of confessional poetry, the ethical consequences of representing real people in art, and the other great medium that has influenced her work, photography, exploring how it taught her to look for, but also question, truth and permission in art. Today we'll hear the Poetics of Motherhood, given November fifteenth, 2016, in partnership with UC Berkeley. And now, here's Rachel Zucker.
1: Why she could not write a lecture on the poetics of motherhood. It was 13 days before she was supposed to deliver a lecture on the poetics of motherhood at the Portland Literary Arts Center and she had not written it. She had written parts of it in her head and she had written notes on small pieces of paper that she had misplaced somewhere in her apartment. She had begun to talk about it here and there, to say things like, in the poetics of motherhood, if such a thing even exists, Alice Notley, Bernadette Mayer, Toy Derricott, and other mothers wrote into a new space, a space in which they were aware of themselves as mothers, as an underrepresented group, aware that the voices of mother makers had not been recorded in the literary record. Sylvia Plath had suicided, 1963. Anne Sexton had suicided, 1974. Adrienne Rich's Of Woman Born came out in 1976, Tilly Olson's Silences in 1978. The poems Mayer, Notley, Derricott, and other mo- mother poets wrote in the late 70s should be considered in the context of a mother poetics, if such a thing even existed, she was sure it did. She wanted to write about how the experience of motherhood and these poets' identities as mothers led to formal innovations and new epistemologies, changes in what poems are about, how they look, what they sound like, who they are for, and what they are for. She was standing in the kitchen talking to James, her former student, a lovely young man, who had come to help her for the day. She texted him, hey, sorry to bother you, I'm trying to write a new lecture. My only hope is to talk it through with someone and have them type some stuff while I do this. I can't do it alone. Saturday, soccer game on Staten Island, but I could do tomorrow morning. Interested? She decided she would talk through the lecture with James for exactly one hour, and at the end of that hour she would decide whether it was possible to write this lecture before November 11th. If not, she would cross it off the list. If yes, she would buckle down. By the time James arrived Friday morning, she told him she'd already made a decision. She had to abandon the lecture, or at least put off writing it until after her trip to the West Coast, which would probably mean never writing it. She was trying not to cry in front of James, who was very young and very kind and had been her student. She sat in her son's child-sized wooden chair, and made her back, which made her back ache, across from James at her kitchen table, rubbing her temples, trying not to cry, and said, let's make a list. James wrote, one, prepare for Alicia Ostriker podcast conversation today, exclamation point, 2 p.m., exclamation point. Two, record Shane McRae intro, outro. Three, finish writing Steph Bird intro, outro. Four, return RZ books to Zappos. Five, Find hand-me-down boots in basement storage for Judah's overnight class trip. 6. Find keys to basement storage. 7. Text Josh for combo lock for code in locker in basement storage. 8. Locate Kristen Prevelet's books. 9. Confirm Prevelet's class visit. 10. Schedule classroom for makeup class. 11. Submit undergrad midterm grades. 12. RSVP to ping-pong birthday party for Judah. 13, gather art supplies for in-class poetry exercises. 14, get bags of rice for in-class exercise. 15, upload sound files from Bernadette Mayer interview. 16, return adapter to NYU and purchase own. 17, find We Were Feminists Once and read it before November 10th. The list of what she did not tell James. One. The night before she had been crying and her husband said something to her and she thinks that what the husband said was, this family cannot function with you working this hard. But it is possible she misheard him. It's possible that through the tears he had said something else that she could not hear. Two, she felt like crying and was having trouble making a list without crying. Three, she had thought about whatever she had right, she had thought She had thought about whether she might be able to write her lecture as a series of lists, but she suspected she just needed to give up the whole idea of writing a lecture before her trip to Portland, no matter what the form the lecture might take. Triage. The day before, her son had been rubbing his temples and trying not to cry. He was overwhelmed by applying for college and his homework, and the fact that he had lost several hours of work on his Hamlet paper because of a computer malfunction and because he was staying up late every night obsessively checking 538.org and reading articles on the election and had come to believe that men are bad and was struggling with how to write 650 words about a situation in which he had failed and what he had learned from this experience but he was thinking he should just memorize the Hamlet soliloquy because what he really cared about was the opinion of his English teacher, who was brilliant but not understanding and thought that the overemphasis on college applications would be counterbalanced by an inordinate amount of homework that she had assigned. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Triage, she told her son. Do you know what triage is? She explained the concept of separating and sifting and prioritizing that doctors did in ER rooms and during medical emergencies and told him he had to do triage and attend to one thing at a time. And together, they reordered his to-do list and sat together until he had done the first four things on the list. This is what she did instead of writing about the poetics of motherhood. Also dinner, office hours, buying the boots on at Zappos. What she did not tell James. Her lecture on the poetics of motherhood was bleeding out. No, actually, it was probably already dead or suffering an acute anxiety attack, but this was not her most pressing problem. What she did not tell James. The family was broken, and she did not know who to help first or how, and she feared they would not make it through intact. She felt she was constantly attending to the wrong person in the wrong way. What she did not tell James. She was not sure if the consequences rage, resentment, frustration of abandoning her lecture were greater than the consequences of buckling down and of writing the lecture whatever the cost. She did not like the sound of buckling down. Instead, she was going to interview the critic, professor, feminist, mother, poet, Alicia Ostriker for the podcast she should not have started and which she could not seem to stop. And so James and she made a list of questions. One. I'm supposed to give this lecture on the poetics of motherhood in less than two weeks, but I have not had a chance to write it because of family responsibilities and teaching commitments. So maybe I'll end up writing it after my lectureship is over, but maybe not. I was hoping we could talk about it for a few minutes. I wanted to talk about women poets like you, Alice Notley, Toy Derricotte, Bernadette Mayer, Lucille Clifton, who were writing in the late 1970s. It's my understanding that after A Woman Born came out, after Silences, that there was a real sense that mothers were an underrepresented voice in art, particularly in poetry. And it seems to me that there's been some good work done to look at the poems of Notley, Mayer, yourself, Hot Clifton, Jordan, Lord, as part of the women's movements, the Black Arts Movement but I really haven't seen a lot of writing about the way in which the experience of motherhood affected the work and poetics of your generation of mother writers. Your books, Stealing the Language and Writing like a Woman, are the most important texts in terms of raising awareness about the gendered nature of poetry and language and criticism. So I think my lecture was going to be my attempt to make some observations about what it meant, particularly in the late 70s, to be writing like a mother. Am I off base? Or was your experience as a mother, not just a woman, relevant to your poetics? She and James found We Used to Be Feminists. They found Kristen Prevelet's books. They found the keys for the basement, the code for the padlock, and in the storage unit, the box of boys' clothes and shoes she'd been storing for eight years with the pair of size three barely used winter boots that Judah needed for an overnight school trip. Can I talk about the lecture, she asked. Of course, James said. She put her face in her hands. Let's look for my notes, she said. OK, James said. All they could find was an envelope on the microwave that said, Poetics of Motherhood, colon, powerless responsibility, Adrian Rich. At the end of September, she had gone away for the weekend to write her lecture on the Poetics of Motherhood. She had made lists and notes and had called her friend and collaborator, her poetry sister, Ariel Greenberg, to talk the lecture through. She had said, I want to talk about how Notley and Mayer and Ostriker and Derricotte's work have innovative markers, means, and forms. She was thinking of Mayer's book-length poem, Midwinter Day, written in 1976, and Mayer's earlier durational projects like Memory and Hunger, or Alicia Ostriker's The Mother Child Papers, or Toy Derricotte's book-length poem Natural Birth, that could only be fully appreciated in the context of these women writing about and during their lived experience as mothers. She was thinking about the ways in which these works were long, and messy, and relational, and exceedingly interrupted and interruptible. Also, indeterminacy, She wrote indeterminacy on many scraps of paper and then lost them somewhere in the apartment. She was thinking about how these works often included lists and questions and domestic details, sometimes fascinating, sometimes boring, about what people ate, what children were doing, and the voices of children. She was thinking about the ways in which these works subverted patriarchal ideas of what poems and art should be, concise, condensed, linear, rhetorical, lyric, Instead, these poems were durational, cyclical, phasic, and radically inclusive. And the departure of these poems from previously held ideals about what poems should look like and do had something to do with the context of them having been made by women writing about motherhood while mothering young children and searching for new forms in which to tell stories that had not been told before. OK, said Arielle, this is good. I haven't really heard any of this before, not in this way, but you need to focus. You need to narrow down what you're talking about to a few poets, and you need to narrow down what you want to say about them. She had gone away that weekend at the end of September to write her lecture, but she needed to prepare for class. And in order to prepare for class, she had to read the book-length poem that one of her students had written for workshop in response to the four mini-lectures she had given about motherhood. The student's poem was shocking and amazing, and more and differently upsetting than anything she had ever read in workshop, maybe anything she had ever read. The poem included many concerning details, history of trauma, abuse, self-harm, mental illness, body issues, self-doubt. The poem asked over and over for the reader to worry about the author. The poem was ashamed of its own urgent alarm of what it meant to ask the reader to worry in this way. The poem shocked, provoked, and then doubted and questioned its own shockingness, provocations, and considered, with problem- considered and problematized, truths, autobiography, and the relationship between the reader and the author. She worried. She cared deeply for this student. She had lost a student two years earlier to suicide. She worried. She had read an earlier draft of this poem and talked with the student about whether or not the student was prepared for the consequences of sharing such a poem. Was the student in therapy? Was the student well enough to be this vulnerable? They had decided together that the student would share it, but still, she worried. A few hours after the poem went out via email, another student asked to speak to her. The student wanted to talk about the ethics of responding to such a provocative and worrisome poem as a piece of art, rather than as a matter of emotional exigency and personal safety. So instead of writing her lecture on the poetics of motherhood, she reread the student's poem and called a friend and called another friend and called a workshop instructor and called someone else who worked in the program. Instead of writing her lecture on the poetics of motherhood, she spoke to the concerned student on the phone and tried to be honest and reassuring and said, I cannot promise you that nothing will happen to blank. But what I can say is that your response is normal and appropriate. This piece inspires discomfort in any caring, empathetic reader and forces the question of how one should respond. I want to normalize your response and give you permission to be honest, about that response and also go on with your life knowing that you are not responsible for Blank's well-being and the the decision to share this work with the class was made by Blank and myself and that it might be upsetting to others and while I cannot promise that Blank will be alright, I can promise you, I have more responsibility than you do and I am working with Blank and I think the decision to share this piece is a healthy one. Triage. She put the notes on her lecture away and reread the student's poem. She sent the student an email just to check in. If I manage to write this lecture, she told James, I will give it in Portland, Oregon on my mother's birthday, which is November 11th. James nodded. And there will be a female president-elect, she told James. Not only the first female president, but the first mother president, she told James. In August, she had decided she was going to write a new lecture, one more lecture that she would give in Portland, Oregon, on her mother's birthday with the new first mother president-elect, and then she would write The Poetics of Motherhood. She had also decided that she did not want to teach her graduate workshop, same old, same old, and was sick of the way workshops led to a kind of conformity of response, a reiteration of values that she had begun to see as patriarchal and white supremacist. She did not want students to bring in poems that tried to conform to receive notions of excellence or for the students to try to please her with their poems. She wanted them to write poems that only they were capable of writing, that only they liked, perhaps. She wanted these poems to resist conformity of all kinds and for the poems to delight, surprise, please, enrage, and deeply confuse her. She wanted the students to write poems that required the invention of a new critical language. Honestly, she didn't even care if they wrote poems. What she really wanted was for the students to explore and develop sustainable practices that they could use to write for years and years for the rest of their lives. After careful consideration and tremendous thought, we have settled on not doing a new lecture this could change, James wrote on the to-do list. She had considered trying to write the lecture on the poetics of motherhood as a series of to-do lists. But in order to do this, she needed to make it through the first of the many items on the many to-do list that she kept making and misplacing. In October, she and her husband had gone to Portland, Maine, away from the kids, not just to be together, but to be together. And she thought perhaps she would be able to finally begin writing her poetics, her lecture on the poetics of motherhood, because the husband had so many papers to grade. But while they were away, her husband's grandfather died and they came home early so that her father-in-law could return to Los Angeles, and she and the husband and their children flew to Los Angeles for the patriarch's funeral. Perhaps she thought she would be able to write the lecture on the plane there, or on the plane back. But when they got there, the husband was deep in a removed dimension he went to when experiencing emotional distress, and each time they got into the rented minivan, everyone started screaming and cursing and crying or gripping the wheel and listening to headphones and this meant that she was triage, 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 and clenching her jaw and not sleeping and feeling alone in the midst of too many and definitely not writing about the poetics of motherhood. One son was worried about his college applications and felt guilty for worrying about them at a time like this. One was angry and wouldn't look at her or talk to her except to yell. One was stuck in a loop of worrying about death, his own, hers, his father's, everyone's. Papa lived a long time, she told the death-obsessed one. He had a large and loving family. He was a success in all he did. He was loved. He will be missed because when he was alive, he was so present in everyone's life. The boy cried. There are things worse than death, she told the boy. He cried. She held him. On the airplane on the way to Los Angeles, she answered emails and made lists until the boy needed her to hold his hand, which made typing impossible. So she held his hand and read a book called Reconsidering Motherhood by Lori Umansky. This is really bad timing, mom, her son said, about his college applications. You've been gone for three weekends in a row. Prioritize your marriage, the couples therapist said. A book said, feminism, something. A book said, Birth poses a major conceptual threat to male dominance. A book said, Our society remains strongly patriarchal, yet pays increasing lip service to the idea of equality. Since growing numbers of women espouse this idea, our culture will not survive in its present form unless these women can also be made to internalize the basic tenets of the technocratic model of reality. This dilemma is one of the most intriguing. How to get women in a culture that purports to hold gender equality as an ideal to accept a belief system that inherently denigrates them a book said to apply statistics to herself a woman must depersonalize her own experience depersonalization can only lead to alienation she made a list of dates she made notes about feminism notes about the women's movement She learned to say women's movements instead of women's movement. What part of you feels better when you don't exercise? Hashtag just curious, her friend texted her. The friend she said she would go walking with every single day. The friend she no longer walked with each morning because she was supposed to be writing her lecture on the poetics of motherhood but she was preparing for class or answering email or taking her son to soccer games or sitting at the kitchen table and making to-do lists with her other son or looking for the book that the new couples therapist had recommended that she could not find and should not read but should be reading according to the new couples therapist. Somewhere, Marina Abramovitz was counting rice. She wanted to count rice. She needed to buy rice to give to her students so they could count rice which was one of the assignments she was going to give them. She sat in the uncomfortable, designed-for-a-child wooden chair and told James about how, when she'd gone to interview Bernadette Mayer for the podcast she should not be making, but couldn't stop making, she had offended Bernadette Mayer by asking a question that her what writer sister, Arielle, had told her to ask. She'd asked Bernadette about writing the feminist epic Midwinter Day, and then she tried to ask her about, well... What Arielle and she had hoped would be a period of new creativity and wisdom, a postmenopausal stage which was called by some the crone stage. Her mother had died. Arielle's mother had died. They wanted to know if life in one's 60s and 70s was joyful, sensual, meaningful, and enjoyable. They hoped it was. They wanted to know what it was like to write when one was not mothering young children or teenagers. But she had used the word prone, and Bernadette had said, are you asking me what it's like to be old and ugly? You'd better go across the road and ask my neighbor. She's much older and uglier than I am. James smiled. He looked down at the to-do list. All they had done was find Judah's boots, write up a list of questions for Alicia Ostriker, and decide that she would not, after all, try to write her lecture on the poetics of motherhood, at least not before November 11th. She had seen Midwinter Day written about in terms of capitalism, as an example of documentary poetics in relation to the 1970s dematerialization of the art object, and in comparison to James Joyce's Ulysses, which both start with the same word, but not as an example of the poetics of motherhood. She told James that she had tried when talking to Bernadette, having driven three hours to see her at her home in upstate New York, having bought a blue Smith Corona electric, not electronic typewriter for Bernadette as a present on eBay, as well as Bialy's not bagels and two packages of smoked salmon, she had tried wildly to backtrack and used speechifying about how it's not what she meant by prone. It's more like the older sense of virgin, you know, because it wasn't a woman who'd never had sex, but a woman who belonged to herself, like the goddess Athena. And Bernadette had shouted at her, a virgin is a woman who's never had sex. So she tried to get out of that line of questioning as fast as she could, but she couldn't recover. And after that, after the recorded conversation, she had a blazing fight with her husband, a huge bonfire of a fight, and they'd left early and gone home to stand in the rain and watch their youngest son lose in round three of the Brooklyn Italians' Columbus Day Cup. You haven't eaten lunch, said James. And soon it's time to go talk to Alicia. I'm worried you won't have time to eat. Eating lunch had been on the list, and it was now 1 p.m. In August, she had posted to the Poet Moms listserv. She had written, Who are the great poet mothers? She had written, I'm trying to write a lecture on the poetics of motherhood, even though I don't even know what I mean by that, and I probably won't know until I start writing. She had written, Also, I'm really sick of teaching workshops the way I've always taught it. Does anyone have a great new idea? C had written back, Call me. So she smoked it on the phone with C, a great mother poet teacher who said she was also sick of the standard workshop model. She decided, therefore, to do what C, the great mother poet teacher, did in her class, which was to lecture on a topic, any topic, for four weeks while students wrote a poem that was at least 10 pages long in response, loosely defined, to those four weeks of lecturing, and then workshop those poems for the next three weeks. This approach would help instill in the students an appreciation for research, for deep engagement in a topic, rather than the shorter one-off poems that traditional workshops so often inspired. She decided that she would, for the first four weeks, deliver four mini-lectures about motherhood. And at the end of this time, she would go away for three days at the very end of September and write her lecture about the poetics of motherhood, come hell or high water. She reread Adrienne Rich. She reread Tilly Olson. She made lists of mother poets and poems about motherhood. She reread Sharon Olds, Lucille Clifton, Alice Notley, Bernadette Mayer, June Jordan, Audrey Lorde, Joy Harjo, Brenda Hillman, Toy Derricotte, Rita Dove. She reread Stealing the Language, Writing Like a Woman, The Grand Permission, and Mother Reader. She read essays by Jane Smiley, Virginia Woolf, Jane Lazard, Joy Katz, Brenda Shaughnessy, Belle Boggs, Susan Briante. She watched Jean Dielman twice by Chantal Ackerman. She watched Baby Cobra with Ali Wong. Well, said James, you have all of next Monday and Tuesday free if no one comes to your office hours. She knew she could give one of the other lectures. She could talk about the Poetics of Wrongness, her first lecture, which she had written mostly because her sons thought and told her she was wrong. Her husband thought and told her she was wrong. She was so wrong and she felt so wrong that she felt herself sinking and sinking into wrongness and realized that poetry was always a place she had gone to when she felt wrong or wronged. Not to feel better, not to feel right, but to be in that wrongness in some right relation. And she knew she had always felt this and had learned this from Allen Ginsberg and Adrienne Rich and Alice Notley. She could give that lecture, but the truth was that nothing, nothing could compare with the feeling of brokenness and terror she felt when she felt she had not been a good enough mother. And this was her poetics of wrongness. No, this was her poetics of motherhood. And she wanted to write about that. Nothing could compare to the feeling of ambivalence and rage she felt being torn between her mothering and her art. This was the poetics of motherhood. She could talk about the history of confessional poetry, as she had done in her second lecture, about the misogyny and white supremacy and heteronormativity and Christian-centeredness of the confessional impulse, especially the critical misogyny levied against Plath and Sexton, a lecture which had come out of her trying to come to terms with the confessional epithet that had been levied against her so many times, and with the legacy of Plath and Sexton, two poet mothers who had taken their own lives, and from her consideration of what it might entail to claim their mantle, and what it might entail to reject it, what it might mean to follow Sharon Olds, maligned, though beprised, as a confessional poet, as the mother that she might want, or the mother she might want to be to come to terms with the fact that she would never be Joy Graham, never be Alice Notley, never be Bernadette Mayer. And why was she constantly, constantly searching for a mother and for the mother she wanted to be? This was her poetics, and it was the poetics of motherhood. She could talk, as she had done in her third lecture, about the ethical consequences of writing about real people, her husband, her mother, her friends, about how she had gone to Foucault to develop her own set of ethical guidelines, which she promptly broke in the poems she wrote while struggling to write the lecture about ethics. The poems that were hyper confessional and full of shame and trespass, and broke every self-imposed guideline she'd suggested, and which implied, if one was paying attention at all, that one should not write about people who cannot give consent, and that to adhere to this ethical standard was to never write about one's children or about motherhood, which was to go back to a poetics that did not include the voices of mothers or the lives of mothers or the bodies and spirits and complex desires and sexualities and rage and ambition and boredom and ferocity and passion of mothers, and that to espouse a pre-motherhood poetics would mean erasing every word she'd written, erasing herself, but to write one single word more, which she was doing, which she had done, Knowing how deep this trespass was, knowing full well the harm that she had caused her own mother and the harm she may be causing her own children, this was her poetics of motherhood. On Tuesday, a bright-eyed student came to her office hours to talk about vernacular criticism and the poetics of excess. These were the students' phrases and terms, although vernacular criticism may have come from Eileen Miles, She couldn't remember because she was too busy repeating the phrases to herself, thinking, yes, maybe that is the name of what I want to do, vernacular criticism, and oh, perhaps I am not writing, and not not writing, about the poetics of motherhood, but I am not not writing about the poetics of excess. And the bright-eyed student wanted her to read a piece of vernacular criticism about the poetics of excess, but she said no, she could not read anything until after she had returned from her trip, where she may or may not be giving a lecture that she had not yet written. The bright-eyed student looked disappointed but said she understood, don't worry, she was signed up for office hours next week and the next and the next through the end of the semester. (coughs) Alice Notley. There was no sound in American poetry that corresponded to my experience. There was no poetry with motherhood as its subject. I had my first child in 1972 and there was virtually nothing there in the poetry to help me know who I was. Also she told James she was afraid. She was afraid to write the lecture on the poetics of motherhood because too many of the women she was talking about were white. The black mother poets, except Toy Derricotte, Lucille Clifton, June Jordan, Audre Lorde, Rita Dove, seemed to be doing something else in their poems. Their poems were shorter, more direct, and urgent in ways that made Mayer and Notley with their long, rambling, domestic, epic, anti-epic chattiness seem like maybe she was not actually observing a poetics of motherhood, but was perhaps observing a poetics of hetero white motherhood. Maybe it was the poetics of excess, and maybe it was a poetics of privilege. She had come to a similar conclusion about the whiteness of confessional poetry. Was she going to reinscribe racism and homophobia like white second wave feminists had done after they had tried and failed to invite black women and lesbians into their movement? If she did not do the real work to untangle race and gender, and maybe even if she did do the real work, she was going to reinscribe racism and the damage done by white feminists and this she did not want to do. She felt that the problem could be partially solved if she reread Sonia Sanchez. She suspected that in the work of Sanchez, there was a key to the observation of motherhood that was diverse and inclusive and complex and beautiful, but she had not had the time. And what about the Latina and Asian American and other minority mothers? Not having the time was no excuse at all. At the same time, not having time was perhaps the single most unifying aspect of the poetics of motherhood. Also, she told James, she needed to write about the emergence of language poetry, and it was important not only to have examples of bio mothers and straight mothers, what about trans men who are now having and raising babies? Also, what about Rachel Blau DuPlessis and Lynn Heginian? It's almost time for you to go to Alicia's, James said, and you haven't eaten? Okay, she said. She opened the refrigerator and found the jelly and the peanut butter. Her mother had been very beautiful and very thin, and had not cared very much about food, and had not been very interested in creating regular routines, especially when these interfered with her mother's writing and performing. All throughout her childhood when she was hungry, her mother would offer peanut butter and jelly at any time of day or night. That, and only that. And sometimes her mother would eat that and only that herself, when and if her mother was hungry, rather than stop working to buy or prepare anything else. She herself took great pride in the meals she made for her three sons and husband, but knew that when her mother was alive she had thought this a terrible waste of time, time that would be better spent writing, although her mother later became an extremely picky eater and demanded her daughter cook her complicated foods as a matter of course. The jam, there was only a little bit left in the jar, and she was so annoyed that her son had put it back after using it that morning. The jam was covered in white mold. Oh, she said. What, James asked. She told him. She showed him. Then she told James the story of why she had dropped out of the S.I.D. program when her second son was a newborn and her oldest son was 18 months old. The story involved not noticing that her oldest son had thrown up during the night, having woken at 4 a.m. to feed him, having nursed the younger one through the night, having a two-hour commute to Rutgers in front of her with a newborn, which several times would mean having to pull over on the New Jersey turnpike to nurse the newborn as cars and trucks hurtled by, the wind knocking against the car like waves slapping her down, She had put her 18-month-old back into a vomit-covered crib without noticing, bottle-fed, asleep, having received a nasty note from the daycare center after the husband, who had also not noticed the vomit crib, even in the light of day, had dressed the boy and taken him to daycare, a small clump of vomit in the boy's hair. The vomit crib. Nursing in the back of a car on the New Jersey turnpike, taking a semester off taking two semesters off because one had to do these courses in sequence, had to pick up where one left off, bringing the 18-month-old who was then 27 months and her newborn who was now 9 months old to the new daycare where none of the teachers knew about the vomit crib and leaving the babies there for the first, for their first full day which was Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. Watching the second plane hit the tower and the sky filled with smoke, the smell, she would never go back to Rutgers. How could she leave these babies in a city covered with the emotional fallout of a glass waterfall of death? And this was her poetics of motherhood. She had a peanut butter sandwich, no jelly, just folded over, not even cut, and wondered, as she ate it, if her son would become ill from having eaten the mold-covered jam. She thought, this is why I cannot write a Poetics of Motherhood lecture, because the jam is covered in mold, and she had not noticed, and her son had eaten it. Language play, inclusivity, close proximity to pre-verbal or barely verbal children, relation to witness, the importance of telling the story of lived experience, subversion of the patriarchy, subversion of binaries, including mind, body, magic, science, high art, craft, male, female. Subversion of testosterone and adrenaline, the poetics of oxytocin, the stay-and-play hormone. The bending of time as the mother, male or female, fluid, relives or re-experiences an early age through close contact with and care of an infant, baby, child, adolescent, and simultaneously inhabits the past's future as the mother identifies with the child and with the mother's own mother as she is now the mother. The very long line as a kind of contraction or, as Ina May likes to call them, rushes. Interruptibility, subversion of the technocratic model, repetition, negotiation of the needs of self and others, how motherhood leads to a new epistemology, for Brenda Hillman, a new betweenness, gestation or nurture as a better metaphor for art and creation. She had planned to begin her lecture on the poetics of motherhood with the first paragraph of Adrienne Rich's essential, one cannot say seminal, book of a woman born. All human life of the planet is born a woman. The one unifying, incontrovertible experience shared by all women and men is that months long period we spent unfolding inside a woman's body. Because young humans remain dependent upon nurture, for a much longer period than other mammals, and because of the division of labor long established in human groups, where women not only bear and suckle, but are assigned almost total responsibility for children, most of us know both love and disappointment, power and tenderness in the person of a woman. She had been planning to talk about Rich's use of the word unifying, not universal because motherhood is not universal, and one of the great things about motherhood is that if one is paying attention and speaking with a mother mind and a mother voice, the way in which motherhood subverts the entire concept of universality. The pregnant body, for example, is not a machine, and not a broken machine, and not a deviant variation of the male form. Mother mind? Mother voice? She imagined a certain male face in the audience cringing. She should go back to one of the other lectures, maybe the one about photography, where she talked about Dorothea Lange and Robert Frank and Sally Mann, about being influenced by photography and photographers, her obsession with authenticity, sentimentality, documentary poetics, and the ethics of representation. She should give any of the other very well-prepared lectures that gave her an armor of long bibliography of sources. No, not armor but at least a very well-padded and supportive nursing bra. But this, this, surely she would be leaking all over visibly, bodily, unscholarly, hopelessly female, embodied, intellectually naked and unworthy in front of the slightest audience. She had two weeks left, but her husband's grandfather died and her husband had learned from her mother's death that it was important to show up for people because of seeing how people had not shown up for her. So they flew to Los Angeles with the children and ate pastrami and cookies and all of the things that made her feel tremendously unwell, and they drove on the perilous highways in a minivan with the children cursing and shouting and crying, and the husband gave a eulogy in which he said that his grandfather had managed during his long life of passionate hard work and 72 years of marriage to compartmentalize his work and make his family feel that there was nowhere he would rather be, no one he would rather be with. She held her crying son and cried. She cried thinking about how no one would describe her this way, and no one would describe her husband this way. They were doing a shit job compartmentalizing. She was trying and trying to be present, but she was not present. She was always not writing the lecture on the poetics of motherhood. She had 14 days, she had 12 days, she had 10 days triage. On her way to work, she listened to a podcast about what had happened at Memorial Hospital during Hurricane Katrina, how it came to pass that as the waters rose, as the medical staff was cut off from the outside world, as the news reported that help was not on the way, that there was looting and rioting, as the hospital was overflowing with sewage and the backup generators failed, they had put down their pets, It had come to pass that the nurses gave the most critical and hardest to transport patients a lethal dose of morphine just before the helicopters did indeed arrive. Her son said, it's been really bad timing that you've been away this much. And when you're here, you're not always here. Her other son said, I hate you and I will never talk to you again. Her other son said, Can you please once read me a book that is not so upsetting? And she thought how stupid she was to not have realized that the Watsons Go to Birmingham 1963 was of course going to include the 1963 Birmingham church bombing in which young children died. And she lay in bed with her son and held him, but could not think of a single book that was not scary. Mostly, her son was scared of Trump. Her other sons had told their little brother that Trump might win. They had told him that if Trump won, it meant the end of democracy. They told him men were bad. They told him white people were bad. They told him racism and misogyny and xenophobia and Islamophobia were bad. They defined these terms for him. Her son, nine years old, developed an uncanny imitation of Trump which was freaky and disturbing and delighted everyone who listened to him which resulted in him walking around saying, Nasty woman, such a nasty woman under his breath when he was not singing the lyrics to Hamilton or playing FIFA or updating his YouTube channel of him doing soccer freestyling moves. She had not taught her sons to cook, she had not taught them to do laundry, She had not taught them to clean, but she had taught them that racism was bad. She had taught them misogyny and homophobia were bad. One of them hated her, but none of them hated women. She had no idea if she was living her life in right relation to anything. It was hard to know if the helicopters were coming. It was hard to know if the waters would stop rising and she knew it was offensive to use the real-life tragedy of others, others less fortunate, less free, less powerful than she, to describe her own powerlessness, her worry, her fragmentation, her feeling that she was the dog in the box, shocked over and over, without rhyme or reason, and still she did it. She used metaphor, engaged in imaginative identification, Are you trying to get us to feel sorry for privileged white women, her son had asked in the Q&A after her lecture on the confessional. This was her poetics of motherhood. He will not win, she said. Her sons spoke to her in numbers. They said he might win, he could win. These boys were math geniuses. These boys said something and something, and it was mostly numbers, and used the word margins and said he was likely to win, but she was the mother, and she believed in the goodness of humankind. She said, it is very important to distinguish between beliefs and worries. You are worried he will win, but no one believes he will win. He will not win. Why not, they said. They were trying not to mansplain her, but they were reading the numbers and watching the news. They were not sleeping or doing homework. They were exhaustedly and despairingly refreshing and refreshing their devices. She said, I will give each one of you $500 if he wins. I am so sure he will not win. She said, here's the truth. It should be enough to be disqualified for being a racist and a homophobic bigot But it's not. That is the sad truth. But you cannot get up in this country at this moment in history and say those things about women and have women vote for you. No women will vote for him. And enough men who care about women will not vote for him. It's in the bag. We will have our first mother president, you'll see, she said. And yes, it will matter. That was her fucking poetics right there, her poetics of motherhood. She told the students, write down as many associations as you have with the word mother. Circle the things that most surprised you. Put a star next to the ones that sparked something for you, something you'd want to write about. A book said, the Beats rejected family and wanted authenticity and less responsibility. A book said, the family oppressed men and women differently. A book said, feminists asserted political change requires a change in consciousness. She wrote, Notley and Mayer are writing about consciousness on a little piece of paper that was somewhere in her apartment. She wrote, the 1970s saw a reendorsement of motherhood, in part because the counterculture offered the, po- the politics of everyday life as its only program, and because white feminists were trying to bring women together as a movement and motherhood had always been a central concern of black feminists. Also, reconceiving motherhood as a potentially unifying force for feminism was foundational for the development of ecofeminism and the feminist peace activist theory. The poetics of everyday life, she wrote, but not O'Hara or Schuyler or Ginsburg. It was ten days, it was eight days, She was staying up until two or three in the morning writing or actively trying not to write the lecture and getting up at six to make breakfast. Her goal was to be kind to the children and to the husband before they left to school. She was failing. She was tired and angry and the election was a week away. All my poems are the poetics of motherhood, she thought. Maybe she could just read poems. Maybe she could read the poem about her second son's birth a poem that split her, a poem that redefined her poetics and her relationship to language. She wrote, when white women fought for abortion rights, they were mostly tone deaf to how this sounded to black women who had endured enforced sterilization, often without their knowledge. What does this have to do with the poetics of motherhood? The poetics of motherhood is always knowable and unknowable, she wrote on her phone in the dark when she was wide awake trying not to write her lecture because really it was not safe. It was not safe at all to be so tired and have to drive her son to soccer in the morning. She tried listening to a podcast. On the podcast, Marina Abramovic said, if you make bread in a bakery, you're baker. If you make the bread in gallery, you're artist. Her feminist husband had no idea she was writing and not writing her lecture on the Poetics of Motherhood night after night. Her feminist husband did not want her to write another lecture. He did not mind the very confessional poems she had written about their family, about herself, about him, but she did not like her lecture voice. Her feminist husband did not know that she was up, what she was up to almost every night beginning on the day, on the night of the day that she and James had decided once and for all not to write the lecture on the poetics of motherhood. Her feminist husband did not know this because they were not sleeping in the same room and had not been for many months. Triage, she thought. The writing of Mayer, Notley, Ostreicher, Olds, and, and, and must be seen in the context of what other feminists were doing from 1976 to 1980, which was writing about daily experience, consciously making motherhood visible, and analyzing this lived experience in ways that were central to feminist theory, central to a a desire for connectedness and authenticity, she would have written if she was writing her lecture on the poetics of motherhood. Tilly Olson. Without intention of or pretension to literary scholarship, I have had specially needed to learn all I could of this over the years, myself so nearly remaining mute and having to let writing die over and over again in me. Tilly Olson, more than any other human relationship, overwhelmingly more, motherhood means being instantly, interruptibly, responsive, responsible. Tilly Olson. What possible difference, you may ask, does it make to literature whether or not a woman writer remains childless, free choice or not, especially in view of the marvels these childless women have created? But might there not have been other marvels as well, or other dimensions to these marvels? Might there not have been present, profound aspects and understandings of human life as yet largely absent in literature. Alice Notley. When I began disobedience, I wanted to see if I could combine all the elements of my previous work into one work, that is, autobiography as daily commentary and daily involvement in politics, fictional narrative with characters and fantasy and dream. She had a dream, the night before the election, that she was handling shit. It was a long and vivid dream. She was trying to hold the shit, but it was slipping and falling and getting everywhere. Alice Notley. But yes, too, my interest in the long poem has to do with taking it away from men. I feel the pressure of a feminized tradition. From Dear Dark Continent by Alice Notley. Doing of everything experience is thought of but I have ostensibly chosen my A family. So early, so early, as is always, as it would always seem, I'm two, now three, irrevocably. I'm wife, I'm mother, I'm myself and him, and I'm myself and him and him. But isn't it only I in the real whole long universe, alone to be in the whole long universe, but I and this he and he makes ghosts of I, and all the he's there would be, won't be, because now I am he, we are I, I am we. Maybe she could write the lecture on the plane, but how could she pack all the necessary books? Did she even have time to find the notes in the apartment on the little pieces of paper, and what if she had dreamed the notes instead of having written them in real life? Toy d'arricot. I grew deep in me like fist and I grew deep in me like death and I grew deep in me like hiding in the sea and I was over me like sun and I was over me like sky and I could myself into myself like one dark eye. He is not I. I am not him. He is not I. Triage, she thought. She should just stop speaking. She should stop writing. She should shut the fuck up. She should not write a lecture on the poetics of motherhood. She should just make a quilt of quotes of the mother poets who had made her who she was, but she did not have time to sew the patches, and would leave too many out, too many mothers, too many mother words. The poetics of motherhood would have to include every word written by every mother poet, at least since 1976, in the world. And even Bernadette Mayer could not accomplish such a feat. Adrian Ridge We know more about the air we breathe, the seas we travel, than about the nature and meaning of motherhood. In the division of labor according to gender, the makers and sayers of culture, the namers, have been the sons of mothers. There is much to suggest that the male mind has always been haunted by the force of the idea of dependence on a woman for life itself. The son's constant effort to assimilate, compensate for, or deny the fact that he is a woman born. She was lying awake in her bedroom that she now slept in alone, listening to her 17-year-old son sob as the election results came in. She was not looking her sons in the eye. How could she? She was crying on the subway on the way to teach, watching the other white women on the New York City subway crying and loving them and hating white women. She was crying through her undergraduate workshop, crying her white woman, white fragility tears as her female undergraduates cried, occasionally running from the room to take calls from their mothers, one sobbing and speaking in Farsi, a black student refusing to speak or take out a pen. She was trying to stop crying and could not stop crying and could not stop apologizing. A book said... And the failure of literature to include mothers means that the delicate negotiation between responsibilities to self and to others as represented by children and husband but also by social networks of friends and co-workers is never modeled for the culture at large. Successful motherhood is a unique form of responsibility taken rooted in an understanding of competing demands, compromise, nurture, making the best of things, weighing often competing limitations in order to arrive at a realistic mode of survival. People were tweeting poems. People of color were saying her shock and despair were offensive and that they were a mark of her privilege that she had failed to recognize that things had always been this bad for marginalized people and for people from underrepresented groups. It was two days. It was one day. It was the day. It was the next day. It was no day. It was night. And it was not the same night, the nights that she had nursed the first, the second, the third, or the night or nights that she had lost the baby between the second or third, the night and nights of bleeding and waiting. It was not the night or nights that she had laid in bed with the husband or the night that she had stayed awake writing and worrying or the night the doctors in Taiwan turned off the heart-lung machine and she had listened to the machine change sounds and then the long, single sound and then no sound. It was not the night of her mother's death. It was not the night or nights of her baby's first cries. It was not the night she had conceived a new life. But it was that night. It is that night. For all those nights are the nights of the poetics of motherhood if there is one. The poetics of motherhood began before recorded time and is larger than our understanding, our human understanding of time. The poetics of motherhood may be the birth of what we call a theory of mind. Intersubjectivity, empathy, it may be what makes us human, not our use of tools, not walking on two legs, not the ability to use language, but the song of being born, of caring for another person above oneself, of needing help, of the lost goddesses, is a long, long night of love and pain. Thank you.
0: Rachel Zucker giving her talk, The Poetics of Motherhood. Zucker's book, based on her BWLS lectures, The Poetics of Wrongness, is out now from Wave Books and is available at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about Bagley Wright Lecturers, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Thank you to UC Berkeley for partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.